Good morning, Woodland Hills. I am so glad to be with you today. My name is Sandra Unger, and I am the director of The Lift, which is a ministry that partners with Woodland Hills on a lot of things, like running a job skills program at a theater. And right now we're partnering on the fundraiser that Shauna just talked about. Our staff, which has not been able to do too much work during this COVID time, are gonna be mentors and tutors to the students in the program. So we appreciate your generosity so that they can get paid a bit. Really cool. All right, I have a really exciting announcement of my own today. Everybody sing. Okay, it's my book. Here's a real copy, and I'll tell you how exciting it is because there's my name. It's called Tribe. It has pages with words on it. It has a back cover. It's very exciting. Here's why I'm excited about it. It tells the story of 15 years living in a diverse community and learning to get to know and get along with and do life with people who are very different than me. It's a lot of stories, and we back it up with a lot of research and It's a fun book, it's a humorous book, and what I'm hoping is that it's a book that draws you toward a life of reconciliation and diversity. It's available on Amazon, and seriously, it's already on back order, which is exciting, but it'll be in again in the next couple weeks. So go on Amazon, order Tribe, Why Do All My Friends Look Just Like Me? Something like that, some kind of title. All right, so now we have a sermon. Let's calm down. We're reaching the end, nearing the end of the Beatitudes. And today I get to talk about the Beatitude in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I think there's no one who would argue with me that we need peace in our world, in our lives, in our country right now. Never in my life have been, there been so many crazy things happening all at the same time. Not just the pandemic, but forest fires and hurricanes and racial unrest. People have lost their jobs and their homes. There's so much stress. There's an epidemic of mental health issues. And we need peace. And it's in short supply. And just to state the obvious, it's very hard to work for outer peace when we don't have inner peace, right? Because what this beatitude says is you should actively be a peacemaker. Well, how can we do that when our insides are all roiled up? But Jesus has given us the tools to work for peace. He lets us do the impossible. He gives us what we need to accomplish things that seem out of this world. And I think the church in many ways has failed to use this power, to fully access this power. And we've settled for something far less than Jesus' vision for us. Less peace, less love, less transformation. To illustrate this, I want to talk about moths. And I'm sure I have a a large contingent of people hoping to hear about insects today, so I'm here for you. I want to talk about the moths and light. Because what moths do is they navigate, I'm being a moth right now, by flying at a constant angle relative to the moon or stars. And this is called transverse orientation. But around man-made lights, such as your porch light, the angle to the light source changes as a moth flies by. So it gets confused. So the moth is flying along, here I'm being a moth again. I am navigating by the light of the moon using transverse orientation. But what's actually happened is that they have mistaken your porch light, a cheap light bulb for the moon. And it's not a good thing because what happens is the moth gets overheated and it falls to the ground and then is eaten by a predator. 
We don't want to do that with our lives, right? So we ought to find the moon. I'm going to make the case that although we be trying to navigate by the light of the gospel, by the moon, we have in some ways settled for a cheap substitution. And that's why today's message is called the moon versus the porch light. Here's one description in the Bible of the real thing, my favorite verses. Here is the moon from Ephesians 3:16 through 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. My hope and my prayer is that many of you, or all of you, are truly living this peaceful reality, that you feel the Spirit of God in your life, you know his presence, you know that he dwells in you, you're rooted in his immeasurable love 24-7. I, personally, do not always feel these things, and especially right now. And I just wanna, as an aside, tell you, I am not preaching about peace because I am the queen of peace. That is not why I'm doing this. I've been writing this sermon over the last few weeks to myself. So we are in this together, and we're gonna work and figure out ways that we can grow peace in our lives together. My point is not to shame any of us and say, hey, stupid, you're circling a light bulb. Um, My point is for us to call each other and call the church back to the vision of peace in the gospel and away from the porch light. We're gonna cover two aspects of peace. One is peace in the world, and the other is peace in your world. It can be really hard, as we think about peace in the world, for us to recognize cheap light bulbs when we see them because we're living in a world full of cheap light bulbs. We look at the world around us and we have a pretty anemic view of peace. I know I find myself saying, could we just have a little peace for a minute? But in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, peace is not just a little bit and it's not just for a minute, right? I submit that in part, this small view of peace is because we are trying to build peace on a faulty foundation. To continue our metaphor, our beliefs are riding on a porch light instead of the moon. And what the porch light does in part is to help us assume that violence and conflict is the way that it has to be. From the very earliest age, our society teaches children that the solution to human violence is conflict. Now, I grew up watching Looney Tunes, as some of you may have done, and there were always fights, wars, conflict going on between an odd cast of characters that included a roadrunner, a red-haired cowboy, a rabbit, a Tasmanian devil, a Martian, a romantic skunk, yes, a romantic skunk, a duck with a lisp, a stuttering pig, and my personal favorite, Tweety Bird. Now, the weapons of their warfare included anvils, guns, TNT, nail guns, all kinds of stuff, and my favorite, shooting each other into space from a cannon. They always fell, smashed on the ground, and they got up and they were okay. But I'm wondering why I never realized that Tweety Bird is very cute, but also evil. He tries to kill Sylvester in so many ways. They took a trip, Granny and Tweety took a trip to Italy in one of my favorite cartoons, and Sylvester followed him, and Sylvester, Tweety tried to kill him by 
burning him, tripping him, setting traps, drowning him. And then poor Sylvester was up with the balloon floating and Tweety shot a nail gun at the balloon. He fooled him into falling off cliffs. He was not a nice birdie. And I admit in the last couple weeks, I've spent far too much time watching Looney Tunes. I had to do sermon research. Um, as a middle-aged person, watching these cartoons did not make me more violent. I didn't start shooting nail guns at people. It didn't make me change my overall view of the world. But the same cannot be said of children. The average child logs 36,000 hours of TV by age 18 and sees 15,000 acts of violence. In one study, teachers rated children exposed to TV violence as showing more antisocial behaviors. And these behaviors included anti or remorse, lying, insensitivity to the emotions of others, and manipulating others. These are not goals that we have for our children. Another study that was done in the 70s with 6 to 10-year-olds and TV violence was followed up when the participants were in their 20s. And the finding is alarming because it showed that childhood exposure to TV violence predicted aggressive behavior in adulthood for both males and females. Now, the point I'm making is not that you should throw your TV away, although that's another sermon, I guess. I'm trying to help us objectify the message of violence and really take a look at it and realize that it's like the air we breathe. It's invisible and it's everywhere around us all the time. I don't know about you, but my siblings and I grew up saying, I'm going to kill you. And sometimes we were mad and sometimes it was just funny. And so I was with my family for a while and I said to my brothers, hey, I'm, I'm working on peace and so I'm going to try not to tell you I'm going to kill you. And over the course of a week, I, they just kept interrupting me and saying, oh, you, you just said you were going to kill me. Oh, yeah, you just said, this is not good. This is a habit that I have got to break. It's not okay. Would we ever let our kids or ourselves going around, go around saying, I'm going to rape you. I'm going to dismember you. Of course we wouldn't. Would we ever let our children watch 15,000 sex acts before the age of 18? Of course not. We would never do that. It's alarming that a small child watches this violence all the time and walks around and says, I'm going to kill you. And we're all just like, cool. It's not okay. It's not the gospel. It's not the good news. So children exposed to TV violence may grow up to be antisocial, more violent. However, most will not become murderers. What they will become like some of us have become, is people who've learned through so much messaging and so many visual images that violence is the solution to conflict. And this is a message that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As theologian Walter Wink says, we are living in a theater of unending violence and no description could be further from the kingdom of God. It's become so normal that we hardly notice. As adults, we don't lose this ability to be surrounded by violence. The TV shows, movies we watch, it continues the theme. Movies are divided into the good guys and the bad guys. Star Wars, Terminator, X-Men, every cop show, it's all very black and white. And we find ourselves uncomfortable when we can't figure out who the good guys and bad guys are right away. And we get confused because we find ourselves rooting for a bad guy. 
So think about Walter on Breaking Bad. He's a normal, nice dad who turned into a murdering, meth-making, habitual liar and drug dealer, and here I am in season five. Go, Walter! Don't let him catch you! That is insanity, and it shows how deeply this has penetrated into us. And characters rarely grow as people or as cartoons. No one sits down and discusses their feelings and differences. And this perpetual violence seems so innocuous when we see it in cartoons or science fiction movies. But Walter Wink also says by making violence pleasurable, which is what happens in movies, we make it fascinating and entertaining. What happens is the principalities and powers are able to delude people into compliance with a system that is cheating them of their very lives and also cheating Christians of the peace that passes understanding. Now we say the word principalities and powers a lot around here, and what we mean by that is corrupt worldly domination systems, institutions and traditions that are built on sinful foundations, forces of violence and injustice, and the demonic that can wreak havoc and does wreak havoc on us and on the world. When we think about becoming peacemakers, we have to pay attention to this foundation because this is what we're building on. And the tools that we are using and the materials that we're using and the instruction manual we are using all come out of this reality. What if we tried to cook a birdhouse in the oven? Make cupcakes with a hammer? Paint a picture using a shoe? Build a house without nails? Play tennis in bed? Actually, this kind of sounds like a fun reality show. I'm gonna have to work on that. But I think these are things we are doing today, metaphorically. We're trying to build the kingdom of God on top of a foundation made by a broken world with tools of the world, with faulty materials, and an instruction manual that's missing some important chapters. The overall approach of our society is to one, identify the bad guy, and two, kill, control, maim, or even just humiliate the bad guy, and thereby claim victory. Everywhere, society is screaming at us, there's conflict and so you need violence. Whereas the good news is that the conflict does not have to lead to violence. That's not the path of victory in the kingdom. We have other tools. Let's spend a minute thinking about that good news. We're awash and surrounded by violence and Jesus says to us, that's not how it has to be. How seldom do we really think about that? But that, this world without violence, is the moon. Our job today in this broken world is to develop those tools antithetical to violence and use them and teach others to use them in resolving conflict and in bringing peace. I know some of you, and I know some of you are saying, what is the big deal with Looney Tunes? It's just a pretend anvil. Or you're saying, Star Wars would be really boring if Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader sat down to peacefully resolve their conflicts. Or this nonviolent stuff is just a lot of new age puffery. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, there's some verses in the New Testament that definitely condone violence. Well, whenever there's a few verses that seem to be totally against the things that Jesus is for, it's wise to take a closer look. So I'm gonna look at just one of them. 
Matthew 10:34 says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So this is problematic. The Prince of Peace appears to be saying, never mind that, grab your weapons. Here's a, one answer, and there are several. You can do some work on your own, but some interpret this verse to be descriptive and not prescriptive. This means that Jesus was saying, here's what's gonna happen when you bring my truth into some context. What he is not saying is, go and use the gospel as a sword to create conflict. There's a big difference there. The effect of Jesus coming and the effect of his message may be conflict, as we saw in the New Testament at times. But this is a metaphor that describes how people may respond to the message of the gospel. But regardless, we're called to represent the Prince of Peace, even if people take it as violence against their way of thinking and their beliefs. Whatever your objective, objection, any of that list, anything that makes you say, oh, just stop talking about this, Whenever we get irritated with someone like me who's saying, maybe this isn't a legitimate way to think about the world, maybe it's not an essential part of our society, then what we're doing is settling for the porch light. And we want the moon. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Charles Eisenstein, who writes and speaks a lot about peace and who I accessed a lot uh, as I was thinking through this message, says that not only are we taught that the way to solve a problem is to overcome the enemy with force, but we're also taught that people are our enemies. People are what needs to be overcome by force. But the truth is there is no human enemy. This is the message of Ephesians 6. It's the message of the New Testament. There is no they. And if there is no enemy, there's no space for violence. You can't commit physical violence against the spiritual forces of evil. The Bible is clear, and we live the truth every day, that there will be conflict among humans. But the good news, the moon, is that in the kingdom of God, people are never our enemy. Our enemy is the principalities and powers. But still, we wage war with those we disagree with, those who look different from us, who believe different from us. And a strategy of war is to dehumanize the enemy. And this is the case whether we're talking about an actual war or a war of words. We have to make our opponent less than human, less than us. We create a backstory for our enemies that reveals them to be bad, evil, irredeemable, unworthy of love. They're deficient. And I think that much of our racial conflict of late is due to the dehumanization of black people. Because if I, as a white person, can say, well, they take drugs, or black families are a mess, or that guy who got shot stole a Coke from a gas station last week, then what I'm doing is I'm finding a way to further dehumanize people in crisis and justify violence against them. Some white people may subconsciously say, well, the people the police are shooting don't look like me and they sin more than I do, so even though I don't like the shootings, I'm just not gonna make a big fuss. And our privilege, my privilege, means I don't have to. I don't have to make a fuss. If you are white, 
then I challenge you to think of your son or daughter or someone that you love lying on the pavement with an officer's knee on their neck until they die and see what that evokes in you. Because we know what happens here evokes huge responses in the heart of Jesus. So when George Floyd died with an officer's knee on his neck, it broke the heart of God in the same way that you feel your heart breaking when you put your loved one in that position. George Floyd was a person of unsurpassable worth regardless of anything else he had ever done. And so are you regardless of anything about you. When we dehumanize people who are victims of violence by saying, well, they deserve it, we are taking the power out of the gospel of Christ. Let's get specific. When we identify our enemies either as a church or as an individual, when we get our identity from them being team bad and we're on team good and we're in this constant conflict, we need team evil. If we gotta be team good, we gotta be compared to something else. So we're team good, they're team evil. And without a team evil, we lose our ability to be team good. If the evil team is removed, we have to find a new team evil, and we're super good at doing that. This is a huge problem because how can we love our enemies while simultaneously calling them evil and dehumanizing them? Loving and labeling are antithetical to one another. I have some good examples from my church about how we created bad guys. When I was a child, everyone who didn't go to church was a bad guy. We had a responsibility to try to save them from their sinful lives, but we could also judge them at the same time. We were multitasking. Uh, My church was also good at saying that anybody who wasn't a Baptist was a bad guy. So we had the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists and oh, those Catholics. And we could feel superior to them. We were on team good and they were all team bad. It was so fun to be on the good team all the time. My church even found bad guys worshiping among us. It was a special gift in my church to be a really good, good, do a good job at identifying bad guys. So people who got divorced were bad guys until it turned out that the rate of divorce among Christians was higher than among non-Christians. Women who had a job outside the home was a bad guy. Men who had long hair were bad guys. We experienced, we expended so much energy, an overwhelming amount of energy identifying bad guys. When I think back on my church years, this is what I feel and hear and think about. And this is the porch light. My church was circling the porch light because this behavior is antithetical to peace and Jesus and the New Testament and it's such a waste of time. And we still do it today. A couple of examples. In some church contexts, gay people are the bad guy. Of course, we choose bad guys who are not like us. And then your son comes out as gay, and you have to find a new enemy, or you have to make your son the enemy. Most of us have seen people on TV of late who are shouting that black black people are the bad guy or police are the bad guy. And they are not. When we want to bundle a group of people together and say they're bad, we're being what's called reductionistic. 
And this means that we need a simple solution to a really complex problem. We are not comfortable with the gray. We want things to be black and white. And so we fall back on the black and white by reducing people to good guys or bad guys. That's the easy path. So here's some black and white for those of you who love black and white, which is that the two police officers who were shot sitting in their vehicles in California last week are not bad guys. They are not team evil. The black people who have been killed by police and who are demonstrating are not the bad guys. They are not team evil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. That's who we wrestle against. Why do we get so much life by establishing ourselves as the good guys? What we're supposed to be doing as followers of Christ is to be loving people, loving all the people around us, acting out the activity of love all the time because we follow the ultimate good guy. That's what we're supposed to be about. And if you hear nothing else today, hear this. As followers of Christ, we do not need a bad guy in order to be the good guy. Our goodness is found in Christ and Christ alone. I want to talk for a minute about peace in your world. There's a few things that we can do to grow toward personal peace, and I'm going to share a few things, and these are things that I've been working on in my own life. I'm not perfect, so if you know me, don't send an email saying, she's really bad at this. I am, but here's some things. Number one, rest in the reality that you don't need a bad guy. Just what we've been talking about. When you watch TV or you start seeing this and thinking, I don't like those people, I disagree with those people, those are horrible people, they're irredeemable. Identify that, think differently, and pray for those people. So maybe just pick one person that you've seen as a bad guy and commit them to pray, to prayer every day. The second thing is do exercises for peace. And there are many, many exercises for peace that you can do. I'll just share a few. In the same way that you work out your physical body to get more physically healthy, you can do exercises to work out your spiritual body and become more peaceful. So first, turn off the news. This is something that I have had to do lately because otherwise I scream at the television set and that's not peace. Uh, Find a quiet space for at least 10 minutes a day to read and be quiet. Find a safe place to talk about what you're feeling with a trusted friend. So these are all the things that bring the volume, that bring the amps down and help you be at a place of peace. So first, rest in the reality that you don't need a bad guy. Two, do exercises for peace. Three, remember that love relationships are the place to start. Nothing, not politics, not religion, not disagreement, gets in the way of this basic biblical truth that we love others. In John 17, Jesus prays for oneness among us that equals the oneness in the Trinity. And I promise you, that the members of the Trinity are not arguing about politics. Last, empathize. And here's one thing that empathy sounds like. If I had lived your life, I would do what you do. We all started out as cute little babies. Even the people screaming out of your TV things that you disagree with. Empathize with what some of those little babies went through. 
to end up where they are today. When we first moved into the city almost 20 years ago, we would regularly in our car find a whole group of black teenagers walking in the middle of the road. And we weren't sure what was going on, but you, you couldn't always pass them, and you, it was just an awkward situation. So you're driving along at the pace of walkers, and they're kind of looking back at us, whatever. And as I got to know people, I would say to the teenagers I knew, what is happening when this group of people walks up the street blocking my way? And my neighbors said, people feel disempowered. Black teenagers feel disempowered. And it's such a cool thing to be able to scare people, to block people, to control their speed limit. And so we're just having a good time. And what I thought was, if I had lived your life, I would do what you're doing. Here's some specifics about dealing with conflict in your lives on a very granular level. In in March of last year, Greg preached two sermons about the elephant and the rider. Now, if you haven't heard them, it's well worth the time, especially because it includes artwork of Greg riding an elephant. It will all make sense to you when you hear it. The metaphor of the elephant and the rider comes from a book by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. And here's an extremely short summary of the book and Greg's sermons. We all think we're making our daily decisions big and small based on rational reasons. The author of this book, The Righteous Mind, is a social psychologist and through his research and the research of many, many others, he makes a compelling case that humans actually make decisions based on feelings or intuition and then come up with post hoc or after the fact reasons for those decisions. So I go out and buy a car and I bring it home and my husband Dave says, why did you buy a car? And I say, well, my old car was going to need a lot of repairs soon, and so that was going to get expensive. And I needed a car that's better on snow, um, and so, and other, also my car had a lot of miles on it. And so I have these reasons. The honest reason is, I felt like it. I bought a new car because I felt like it. Ever since I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, and after I've read this book, I realize all the time. I'm a a thinker, that's what I am in the Myers-Briggs, and all the time I realize I make decisions based on my gut, and then I think of reasons why I did it, so that you can always defend yourself. So, in the metaphor of the rider and the elephant, the elephant is our emotional brain, and the rider is our rational brain, also known as the elephant's press secretary, because it's the rider's job to come up with defenses for the elephant's decisions after she's made them. Why can't it be a horse, you may ask? Well, you can steer a horse. And the point of the elephant metaphor is that the elephant is in charge. The emotional brain is in charge. So when we engage family and friends and even strangers about things we disagree on, we make the mistake of talking to the rider instead of the elephant. We come with our reasons. We do this when we talk about God, religion, politics, our favorite potato chips, climate change, everything. We engage the rider, we have our reasons. But it doesn't help to talk to the rider, according to Height's research. The rider is not steering the elephant. We have to talk to the elephant. And studies show, so interesting, studies show that the elephant will listen to reason under certain circumstances. Quote from the book, if there is affection, admiration, a desire to please the other person, then the elephant leans toward that person 
and the rider tries to find the truth in the other person's arguments. The elephant will rarely change its direction in response to objections from its own rider. Our own rational brain has a hard time convincing our emotional brain, but it's easily steered by the mere presence of friendly elephants or by good arguments given, it, given to it by the riders of those friendly elephants. So you can just picture the leaning going on all of the time. During these conflicted times, it would be so helpful if followers of Jesus worked on training their elephants to lean in. When someone is yelling and shouting statistics, when there's anger and hostility, the elephant leans away. Have you ever tried to argue politics or religion with someone you disagree with? That feeling that you get, that's the elephant leaning away. Sometimes the elephant leans so far that it falls over. So when you're discussing these difficult topics, love is the key component to influence the elephant. Affection, admiration, a desire to please, these are the things that make it possible to peacefully talk about important topics and potentially change someone's mind. It's often very, 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 very hard to be peaceful and loving when having difficult conversations. And Greg pointed out that people are not often able to remain calm, but that we as Christians can submit our elephants and riders to the Holy Spirit because our rightness, our goodness, our power does not come from winning arguments or being the good guy. So I'm gonna give you one more task to add to your peacemaking activities, and that is to notice your elephant. And I promise you, your elephant is everywhere. There is an elephant in the middle of the room. Our rightness and our power comes from the righteousness we find in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Eisenstein, who I mentioned earlier and who is not a Christian, wrote a book called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. In it, he describes this beautiful world. Here's what he says. It's a world where everybody has a place, where everybody is valued, where everybody is welcome, where everybody is known to have a gift that is essential to make the world even richer, and nobody is left out. He's describing the moon. Everyone longs for this reality. Everyone longs for this world. Do we think that we as a church can do better at living this out than we've been doing? Can we do better? I think we can. Let's not follow the porch light. Let's turn out the porch light. Let's lean into all the peace and love that's available to us as followers of Jesus Christ, even when it's difficult, even when it feels impossible. I want to leave you with a cool gift at the end of this service. There's an organization out of Israel called Kululam, and they were organized a few years ago to strengthen the fabric of society by mass singing events, which might sound weird, but what they did a while ago in Haifa, Israel, is they called together a group of 3,000 people who were Christians, Muslims, Jews, and they sang a song together uh, written by a Jewish reggae artist called Madis Yahu. Christians, Muslims, Jews who often see each other as enemies. And here is their song.
one day. All my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for the people to say that we don't want to fight no more. There'll be no more wars and our children will play. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. Amen.